Hello and welcome to the Hunt Harvest Health podcast. Today we have episode number 22. Before we start the podcast too, remember this week, this Saturday, April 1st, Ryan is going to be doing a uh, talk at the uh, Fife Tacoma Washington Sport Co. Him and his hunting partner, Joey Pyburn, they're going to be talking about uh, backcountry skills and what they believe it takes to hunt in the Washington backcountry for deer and elk. Uh, there'll be other speakers there like Jason Phelps and they'll be giving lots of prizes away, gear giveaways, etc. And it's sponsored by 710 ESPN, the Outdoor Line Show. So make sure that you go there 10 to 3 this Saturday, April 1st. You excited about that, Beb? A little nervous. I'll we admit. did the PowerPoint this week. He did the PowerPoint. It's pretty cool. It's going to be a good presentation. So. Well, maybe the PowerPoint will be good, but I'm, you know, I may pass out <laughs> just from nervousness. I don't know. I'm not a public speaker and never have been. So, well, you're it's totally on your for way me. to becoming a public speaker. No, that's Pretty not the exciting. case. This is just definitely out of my comfort zone, but it'll be interesting. Um, hopefully, we can get some good information out there with uh, helping some of the younger fellers get up there in the hills this this fall and and yeah. put some critters down. So. It's helpful to talk about things you're really passionate about, right? It's kind of second nature. Sure. Yeah. 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 That's so. why I enjoy this podcast today. We get to talk about gardening. <laughs> and we happen to live fairly close to a woman who's had pretty good success in sharing her homesteading, gardening, uh, do-it-yourself lifestyle. Uh, what's that podcast, babe? Uh, the podcast is uh, Pioneering Today podcast. So <clears throat> I think that as I get older, I, I try to do more things, be a little more self-sufficient with everything. We've, we've obviously talked about that a lot on our podcast with hunting and gardening and canning and, and whatnot. And uh, the guest we have on today kind of really fits that. Um, she She's very good at, at uh, you know, doing things herself, being very self-sufficient and Every year, I try to get a little bit more of that worked into our life. So um, whether it's creating our own things, uh, growing our own garden, um, all these different recipes and things like, things like that, I just I geek out over it. I love it. And so I find it super interesting to get uh, to follow folks who have made this a lifestyle, and which is where you know I'm headed. I, I want to get more of this as I get older and, uh, just get a little bit more knowledge every year and different ways that I can be a little more self-sufficient. Yeah. And the self-sufficiency piece too, when you, when you listen to, um, her name's Melissa K. Norris. When, when you listen to Melissa talk, she's just got so much energy about this type of lifestyle. She's going to be giving our, uh, listeners a free guide to help you break down foods um, like how much food you would need per uh, yield for person in the house. It's a chart. It's a ton of information on it. I'm probably not describing it very well, but you can go to um, our website, huntharvesthealth.com slash programs. So if you're thinking about starting a garden and what types of foods you want to pick and what kinds of foods you like to eat in your household, this would be something great for you to to download and uh get a start on that. Enjoy this podcast number 22 with Melissa K. Norris, Pioneering Today. So today we are joined by one of my favorite podcast hosts, uh, Melissa K. Norris of the Pioneering Today podcast. Now a lot, of, a lot of our audience may have no idea who Melissa is, uh, which is super unfortunate because uh, 
I think she's pretty awesome. Um, she's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to being more self-sufficient. She's a self-proclaimed homesteader, a farmer, a gardener. Um, I think I've heard her say a few times that she's a lover of mason jars, which <laughs> which is means, of course, she is a is a canner, which is right up our alley. Uh, we too are lover of mason jars. In fact, everybody that comes to our house is. Always a little weirded out when they go to, you know, when we hand them a glass of water. It's always in a mason jar because it's like we don't even think about it anymore. Every Everything we have is in mason jars. But uh, uh, anyway, so Melissa, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. And that statement right there, like we are, we're family already. I swear. Because I don't know about you guys. I don't know if it's, everything just looks better and tastes better in a mason jar water included. You're absolutely so. right. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, our mason jar addiction did not start because I thought, oh, that would look so cool in our household. It started because Ryan Ryan began canning, and pretty soon I had so many mason jars everywhere that my my glasses, my real glasses kind of broken. I never bought a new set, and then I realized, geez, I have, like, so many mason jars. They're in closets. They're in the pantry. So I just started – we just started using them for drink cups, and now they're our glassware. That's all we have. Is, we don't uh, have any regular glasses. We have fancy china from when we got uh, – or uh, crystal from when we got married that's in a, my hutch, and my daughter's always like, Mom, we need to drink out of the fancy cups. You guys never use these. <laughs> Because they're drinking out of mason jars, so. Yeah. 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 Yeah, The mason jars are so versatile. I mean, from your food storage to your drinkware. I use it for anything, leftovers, you know, to-go containers, dry goods. Yeah. I think the mason jar might be the epitome of the homesteader and the self-sufficiency person. It's like our logo. (laughs) You actually (laughs) motivated me uh, watching some of your stuff. A couple weeks ago, I just did a. You know, like I said, it's been raining here in Washington nonstop. So I was cleaning out my kitchen, did a kind of a spring overhaul, and I put everything. I just got rid of all the plastic. I put everything in them. All these mason jars I have, you know, organize my cupboards, and I just love it. It's it's cool. So that's that's another thing we use mason jars for, right? Yep, everything's yeah, yeah, food storage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Everybody should have a little more mason jar in their life for sure. So. <laughs> Anyway, so I, th- I think, uh, gosh, there's so many, like I mentioned, I, I uh, follow you, I listen to your podcast, and, and it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, it's Pioneering Today podcast, mm-hmm. um, and gosh, there's so many things we could talk about. Um, I think you're just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to all these things, being self-sufficient and, um, and gardening and canning and whatnot, which is what we obviously are into. So I thought that uh, maybe... It is the season for gardening, and a lot of folks are asking us, you know, what, where to start? Because I think a lot of our audience is just maybe hasn't had a garden yet, and they're starting to think about one. And I know I'm starting to get like photos from people who never in a million years thought they'd be gardening, but they're sending me photos of, of their starts and everything, so they're pretty excited. Um, I got one the other day. Guy's starting his first broccoli, and uh, and he showed me like the little green sprouts popping up, and he's like, "Holy smokes, I'm a gardener! Now what?" <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I thought we'd bring you yeah. on today and, and and talk a little gardening. You know, let kind of uh, intro on where to start, and I thought we'd do do um, a little seed selection and and what to grow and all those kinds of things. Yeah, well, and which is I get so excited when 
for first-time gardeners because it's one of those things, if you've never experienced before, if you've never grown something, you know, from seed and had the experience of going through the whole life cycle of, you know, harvesting it and all of that, it's really exciting. Like, it's something to get excited about. And so I, I love it when I hear, because, in, you know, today's mainstream society, which you guys get, and I'm sure anybody who's listening to this, your listeners as well, in modern America or Western society, we've really moved away from where most families always had a garden. You know, they might have raised all of their own food, but most people would grow some of their own food and had at least a summer vegetable garden. But that's really kind of went by the wayside in the past, you know, 20 years especially. There's a lot of people that have never grown anything before. So I'm super excited to see a resurgence coming back where people are really starting to look at their food and where it comes from and wanting to do this themselves. So to the reader that sent me the picture of your broccoli, like I want to high five them. Like, dude, I totally get it. It's so <laughs> exciting when you see it pop up from the ground and you're like, I'm growing this. Yeah. yeah. Growing so yeah. I just want to, yeah, give that bit of encouragement. But from where to start. So first off, depending upon where you're listening, my, your first piece of advice that you're going to need to know, and this is for every gardener, is you really need to know because your whole garden evolves around what your first and last average frost dates are. So at the time of this recording, we're in the spring. So for those of us in the U.S. and Canada and that area, depending upon, you know, what your weather pattern is, your last average frost date is the date you're going to be most concerned about in your spring planting. So... For me, and I'm sure you guys, because we're actually pretty close to each other, for us, the last average frost date on the calendar is April 29th. Is that about your guys' Yep, exactly. Yep. Right. But I'm tucked up in the foothills of the North Cascades um, in Washington State. So I know from experience, the calendar might say our last average frost date is April 29th. But I don't put any of our warm weather plants out until about two weeks after that. Because so if you have anybody in your area that does garden, you know, ask on Facebook, use social media. You can ask them when they normally put their warm weather plants out. And that will give you a good idea if you've got some micro zones, what we call them going on, which we do here, up further towards the mountains and if they're further towards the coast where we live. So I are on the side of caution and wait an extra two weeks. Right. Uh, how about you guys? Yeah, same thing. I, you know, I guess I, I am a little antsy, so I do start some things a little early, and I always, I always do a, do a crop. You know, I, I plant some things that I, I'm just kind of hoping, you know, for the best, and hoping not because I mm-hmm. want to get things started so early. Um, but you know, if all else fails, and I put it in, and and um, I'll just do a few rows, and then if we get that frost, obviously I gotta, I gotta restart. But um, I. I do have, you know, as far as a hot house, I always get things started a little bit earlier in there and, and um, you know, inside and, um, you know, get the lights on and, and all that so that so that I get a good jump to that um, before we actually go and, and plant the garden once the, the soil's starting to warm up, so. Um, yeah, and sitting here, like, and so in reference when I was talking about putting things out, I should specify, especially for those of you who are new to this as well with gardening, so that when we warm weather crops and when we're putting things out, so that would be, um, there's two methods. Obviously, if you start seeds or you buy starts at a nursery, or you can start your seeds indoors before the weather, like Ryan's talking about, which I do too. I've got about 25 tomato plants, basil, and German chamomile right now in my living room under a grow light. So those crops, because they're warm weather crops, tomatoes, 
uh, peppers, green beans. They're things that they require a soil temperature of about 70 degrees, especially for tomatoes and basil. Peppers even a little bit hotter if they're those hotter peppers. So you can kind of go by what your weather patterns are being and then how cold it's getting at night as well when you can start to put those out. Yeah, those so, tomato plants are, those things are like babies. So um, that's that's one thing I do not risk putting out too early because that would be a real bummer if uh, if you froze your tomato plants and put them out a little bit too, uh, too much ahead of schedule. Yeah, same here. We actually, I have a, um, uh, I call it an off-grid greenhouse because there's no heat to it, there's no electricity to it. But I even put my tomatoes and peppers, even during our summers here, the Pacific Northwest, because typically we do still get a lot of rain until after July 5th. It's a joke around here because it, July 4th is usually raining and the very next day it's sunny. <laughs> so um, I still put my tomatoes actually undercover, even outside through the whole summer to avoid blight and just get a, a bigger extended um, growing season and harvest off of them. That's what we but, do as well. Yeah, we've we've noticed. In the early yeah. years, I used to I used to try to put some tomato plants out, you know, on the deck and whatnot, and, and inevitably we would get blight. And so uh, after years of frustration, I just went ahead and, and um, you know, built the giant greenhouse that was able to support a lot of uh, tomato and pepper plants both. So yeah, blight is not our friend here, and, and it'll get you with all the rain that we have, so for sure. Maybe, maybe you could uh, talk about blight and, and what it does and the effects it has on tomatoes. Yeah, definitely. So with the tomatoes, um, blight unfortunately comes on, usually it's with moisture. So especially tomatoes. Tomatoes are very susceptible to blight, but also anything in the nightshade family, um, potatoes, um, eggplants, and different peppers. But tomatoes are the most susceptible, the ones that is most commonly too. So and once your tomato plant is infected with blight, unfortunately, there's really no saving it. Um, it, it just it, Once it's there and you see the evidence of it, it's kind of went, went to the plant. So there's really no bringing it back. Right. But it comes on with a lot of moisture. And so for here in the Pacific Northwest, or if you've got a really rainy climate, that's just kind of a given. But also, if you're doing a lot of overhead watering, where there's water and moisture sitting on the leaves of the plant and then the fruit of the plant, that can also bring blight on as well. And so it ends up infecting the crop. You're going to get black. Um, it just takes over. It's a fungus and it just grows and it's just hideous. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, I use even in the greenhouse as well, because I obviously I don't have water coming down from the rain. So I do have to water. I use soaker hoses. I don't do any overhead watering on the tomatoes just to ensure that I don't have that. So if you've got tomatoes and you're using sprinklers, you may want to consider either watering by hand, depending on how many you have, or doing a soaker hose or a type of irrigation water system where you're watering just at the ground and not on top of the plant. It actually is a better use of your water yeah. um, as well. I'm glad you brought that so, up because that was, <laughs> I remember a story um, every once in a while, my wife and I will, will go on a trip and I'll have somebody watch the house. And, and inevitably my biggest worry is, uh, is the garden going to get watered? So I check on that. But one time I, I didn't remember to kind of explain the watering system that I've got. And so, uh, it was just kind of like a hose got brought in and, and just kind of sprayed oh, down no. all the tomatoes. And, and then I kind of realized that later I was like, Oh man, I just totally forgot to tell them about how you water tomatoes. And I think a lot of folks don't really know that, uh, you're just supposed to basically water down by the roots and in the soil and, and not spray the whole darn plant down like you can do with other plants. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty important. 
Yeah, like we'll use an overhead sprinkler on like our beans and the other, you know, crops in the garden, squash and that kind of stuff, just because I haven't invested in enough soaker hosers to do the whole thing. But the soaker hose really is the best just because it uses less water and it just drips down into the soil. You're not wasting the water on top of the vegetation. And if, you know, mildew and mold and those type of things are a problem in your area, it does help combat them. But we use a system of both. But on the tomatoes and peppers, I only use the soaker hoses. And I've been using the same soaker hose, I think, going on like four years now. So for me, they've really lasted a long time. I'm well worth the investment. They're really not that expensive either. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. So, so we've kind of gone over a little bit on, on when to start. Um, now what, uh, in your opinion, where, where would somebody, if somebody's never had a gardener, they don't, maybe they don't have, they don't know about their soil. They don't know about, um, you know, what it takes to have a good, a good soil that's going to be able to grow these plants. You know, where does somebody start for that? What do they look at? Oh, yeah, no, and that's great. So depending on what kind of soil you have, we're going to go back a little bit to science class, um, and we're going to talk about the pH of the soil a little bit. So, of course, we know you've got um, acidic, which is going to be the lower on the number scale you are, the more acidic something is, and then as you go up, um, it's more alkaline. So depending upon what you're planting and the type of your soil, some areas of the country are very alkaline, and some areas of the country have more acidic soil, which here in the Pacific Northwest, we're a little, we're slightly acidic, which works well for most plants. Right. Um, so you're going to kind of want to find out, and a great resource is going to be your local county agriculture extension office. It's a really great resource. Um, most county extension offices will also do soil testing for you, so you can take soil samples to them if, if you don't know, and they will test your soil for them. Um, the county that I live in is actually one of the few that does not perform that, but I, <laughs> I, um, I know what our soil pH is, so that's okay. Um, so that's going to be one thing that, that you're going to want to know. And then the other thing is if you're putting in a, a brand-new garden and you're looking where to put your plants, a couple things is you're going to want to go and look at your, your property and your land, and you're going to want to see – how the water drains naturally. So if you get a lot of rain or you get a rainstorm, you're not going to want to put all your plants at the bottom of any type of slope where all of the water can rush out and it can wash away seeds when you're first planting in the spring, when you're direct sowing, just putting the seeds in the ground. You get a lot of rain in the spring and it's down at a low area. That can, one, soil erosion, and two, if it's a really heavy rain, it can wash some of those seeds away. So that's going to be something Plus, if you've got neighbors next to you and their property, you would want to look and see if there would be anything that would be running off from their property. And so that's going to kind of give you a gauge just on where you want to put your, if you're not doing a raised bed or container beds, I should say, too, kind of an idea on where you might want to put your garden or areas to stay away from. Uh, second biggest thing that you're going to want to know, too, is light. So sunlight is really important to most plants. There are some things that will grow okay in shade or afternoon shade, but most plants need the full day worth of sun to grow the best and to give you the best harvest. So look, see what trees you've got going on, what buildings. Um, and now for me, as I here in the Pacific Northwest, because we don't have a really strong, strong sun compared to, you know, like people more south and other parts of the country, is I would rather have, we've got some trees on the east side of our property. So in the morning, they're going to block the sun already. So I prefer to have my plants that are getting the afternoon to the later sun because that sun is already blocked. So 
So you're going to want to look at if you've got neighboring buildings, if you've got neighboring trees, and keep in mind, too, this time of year, some of the trees or large bushes might not be leafed out yet. So just keep that in mind. They might not be throwing shade right now, but as they get all their leaves on, they may provide a shade blocker. So just really kind of look at the surroundings. Walk, Take some time, walk throughout the property, do it a couple different times of day so you can really see where the, the light is. Um, and those two things alone are going to help you pick out the best spot to actually put your plants in the ground. Right. Absolutely. And, that's that's yeah. a good point. <laughs> Do you want to talk about soil amendment? I know I feel like I've given you guys a lot of stuff to think about, but. Oh, yeah. um, no, it's great. Yeah. Let's definitely talk about that. I, I, I think a lot of people um, surprisingly are kind of worried. Like, I, I don't know if I've got the right soil or what do I need to add to it? Or, you know, those kind of questions. So. Yeah, no, and that's great. So for your soil, obviously, you if it's really hard packed, so if you've got really hard clay soil, um, sometimes people, if it's really, really hard packed soil, now we don't have that in our area of the country, but I know other places do, and so they decide to do raised beds and container gardening because that soil is so hard that it would take so much work and amending to it that it's actually just cheaper, more beneficial for them to just build raise beds and then just bring soil in rather than try to amend what they have. But I would say that's probably only in pretty severe, really hard packed, rocky soil. I think for most people, they're going to be able to amend fairly easily and they can grow in the ground. And you can also do a mixture. You know, you could do a small section of in the ground planting and then you can also do some raised beds and some big containers too. So don't feel like you have to commit to just one. You can do lots of different different things as well. Um, but when you're doing your soils, you want to make sure that it's got a good balance of food for the plants that you're putting in there. So um, a lot of compost is great. And you want it, you don't want it to be really hard because we need the soil to be soft enough for the roots, especially for the baby plants, to get down in there. And then also for your water, for it to be able to drain down in there. Because if it's really hard packed, the water that you put on to water your plants is just going to wash off and it's not going to soak down and get into the roots. So that's kind of the reasoning on that. Right. But compost is a great, great way. Um, you can start a compost pile. You can go to local nurseries and you can actually purchase compost. But composting is a great way to add good nutrients. And it's also soft and it's loamy, so it works well into the soil that you can do. Um, we use, getting a little bit late in the year to use it now because if you're going to put down manure, um, fresh manure, it needs a long enough time to cool off. It's too hot. It has too much nitrogen in it, especially chicken poop. <laughs> it's really high in nitrogen. So you will burn your plants. It will have too much nitrogen. It will actually kill your plants if you put it down fresh. So that's generally something you would want to put down in the fall and then just let it sit over the garden during the winter months. You can mix it with straw um, and that type of thing, different plant matter, leaves, and that. And then it will just sit and then you can work it back into the soil come springtime. But this time of year, you would, if you did get some, you would want to make sure that it wasn't fresh, that it had been sitting for a while somewhere. Otherwise, you would be in danger of burning your plants this time of year with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. I know <clears throat> what we kind of do around here is I've got, like you, I think I, I, we've got a lot of chickens. So I kind of open up our chicken um, pen kind of butts up to my garden. So I just kind of in the winter, um, after I've pulled the last of my crops out, I, I kind of open it up and I let the chickens, the whole flock, just kind of go in there, and, and um, they fertilize my garden all winter long. So it works out really well. Um, 
it just kind of gives them twice the space and, uh, and they, they drop a lot of goodness into that garden. So it works out perfect. And we get so much rain around here that, uh, that it definitely, um, you know, it take, get, gets the acidity out of it and it, and it, uh, and it breaks it down to where it's more beneficial for the soil. So it's kind of just worked for us and, and we do, you know, composting as well. And we add a lot of, you know, organic matter just to get the soil up and, and whatnot. But, uh, what, what else do you do, um, to the soil? Do you add, so you said you add a lot of straw. Do you, do you put that in with the, with the fertilizer? Yeah, so what I usually with chickens too, which putting your chickens on the garden spot is great because chickens are natural scratchers, yeah. and so they will they will help um, loosen up any compacted soil that you might have. <laughs> so Absolutely. chickens are a great thing to put in the garden spot. Um, word of warning, though, if you put any winter crops in, for example, we put in about seventy um, heads of garlic, so it'll be seventy bulbs later in. So that part I have covered with straw to help protect it through the winter, but. Make sure that part's fenced off if you've got winter crops like that going that you don't want the chickens to get into because yeah, they're not very discerning. <laughs> we've got that. We've got that issue. I have all my garlic is, you know, it, it winters over and, and um, you know, it's growing and it's pretty tall right now. But same thing. It's all in a, in a raised bed. And, and I just set a... It's like uh, fencing over the top of it so that uh, mm-hmm. that they can't get in there. They don't actually uh, jump up in there and scratch it all up. So it works out pretty well. Yeah, no, that is great. So we've done a a variety of different ways to fertilize the garden. And my favorite way, of course, is always free or cheap, like, to be real. (laughs) That's my favorite route to go. So compost, yeah, I mean, that's, that. yeah, if I can do it where it's, you know, beneficial for the the soil and all of that, and I know the source of where it's coming from, uh, meaning that it's not from animals that have been on big feedlots, and I know the type of feed that the person is feeding them and that type of thing. Um, but I've used, we've used combinations. So I've done uh, steer manure, done chicken manure that sat with some straw and actually also with um, some sawdust. We kind of let that compost it down till it's just a really nice dark, deep soil um, and put that on. We have done um, horse manure. And the reason I always say it's usually mixed with straw is because usually this is coming out of horse stalls or it's coming out of animal pens. Um, alpaca. Um, manure with, you know, the bedding in their stalls and stuff. That's great. Right. Um, and then the chicken manure is mixed with straw because a lot of the times it's the bottom of my chicken coop when I'm cleaning it out. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. I'll just go and, you know, dump that on the garden soil and then, you know, it, it breaks down and works itself in and, and that works great too. And of course there are, you know, if you don't have livestock, because some people when they're first starting gardening, the, the likelihood of you having livestock is probably, um, if you're just starting with gardening, you might not have moved into the livestock yet. So a couple options, if you know people in your area who do raise animals, usually most of us have an overabundance of manure from our livestock. So you could ask someone like that if you could come and get it um, and work out a deal with them like that. I know we've got some neighbors that do that. Um, They just have people who come in and pick up that for their garden. Um, But other things that you can do are going to local nurseries or compost areas. Um, There's compost businesses that you can get compost and stuff from. So you can look and you can get bagged. Um, fertilizer. You can even at the feed stores actually. You can buy steer manure in big plastic bags and put that on your garden if you don't have access to that. So you can buy those at feed stores and gardening supply stores too. Um, and it's not too terribly expensive. It's going to be more obviously than if you're probably shoveling it out from somebody or just from your own yard, but or pasture area. But those are options that you can do too. 
So those are kind of the main ones we do is usually a mixture of both plants and then livestock manure uh, to the garden soil for most of the amending. Got it. Yeah. And I, it's kind of sad. I, I, I go to a lot of these, these stores, these feed stores and these co-ops and this time of year, you just see the piles of bags, right? Everybody's buying soil. And I always feel so lucky because we have such good soil around here. And with having the animals, you just, you just don't have to do that. You know, you can create your own really good soil and, and which fits perfectly with what we do because we're so cheap and, uh, it just works out. (laughs) Yeah, well, I do want to give one tip, and this is what anybody can do, and it's going to be in reference to the tomatoes, but it's a great thing we, time of year right now to do it. So tomatoes, a lot of times on your tomatoes, you will hear of what may, you may have experienced in the past. It's called blossom end rot. So what happens is the tomato starts to ripen on the vine, the end of the tomato, right before it's just ready to be picked, which can be very disheartening, or as it's ripening, it will start to develop a black rotted spot on the end of us on the tomato. And so that's usually blossom end rot. And usually the reason for that can be inadequate watering, but usually it's a calcium deficiency. So what I do is we, I just save my chicken shells from the eggs, save those, rinse them out, you know, rinse them off. I don't necessarily wash them, but I'll rinse off, you know, the yolk and stuff on and rinse them clean. And then just save those in an old coffee can container, just whatever, save them in a container and then crush those up because eggshells are an excellent source of calcium. So I crush those up really fine, and then I plant that in the bottom of the hole when I'm planting the tomato, either in the container or in the ground, which is where I plant all my tomatoes now in the hothouse, in the ground. And then over the months, as that's growing, those eggshells will break down into the soil, and I grind them up, I crush them up fairly fine. Um, Then that will be releasing the calcium into the soil as it breaks down as those tomatoes start to ripen. And so that can help with blossom and drop, too, and it's a cheap, easy thing to do. Uh, with your eggshells because most people are eating eggs one way either from their own chickens or from the store absolutely yeah i know in my family um you know we've got two daughters and and we're all egg eaters so we we chew through a lot of eggs i think we probably go through eight ten eggs a day around here so we got a lot of eggshells and that's exactly what we do as well we um we kind of we kind of bottle them up we toss them in the hot house and they dry out so they get really uh really nice and bone dry and then i've got I've got one of those Nutribullets and, uh, you know, just before I plant, I ended up crushing them down and I, I put them in that Nutribullet and I, I turn them into a dust, some of them into a dust and some of them a little less, less, uh, refined, but that is, that is perfect. That's what we do as well. We put them in there with the peppers and, and at the base of those roots, uh, with, uh, with the tomato plants and it has it completely eliminated all that. Just like you said, the blossom rot, which if you kind of skip that step and you end up growing this incredible tomato plant and right at the end you know these tomatoes are getting close to being ripe and you and you develop that blossom rot as a real bummer <laughs> it just like yes it is depressing so yeah definitely uh thinking ahead and and getting some good calcium in there with those eggshells is is a definite good way to go we've learned that the hard way so yeah you know another thing as far as a free resource for mending the soil now this is going to be um And there's various lab tests. I've looked off of the lab tests online, and there's been varying results on the acidity that is actually added to the soil. Some of the studies that I found show significant amounts. Others show not so much significant amounts. But if you've got more alkaline soil and you need it to be more acidic, so plants that really thrive in acidity, the most acidic loving plant that I'm aware of is a blueberry. So blueberries really like acidic soil. Uh, raspberries like acidic soil as well. Rhubarb likes acidic soil. 
So those plants that are really in our flowers, that rhododendrons and azaleas, hydrangeas, like acidic soil too, but uh, as far as our fruit-bearing crops or food-bearing crops. So what you can do and is to take coffee grounds, used coffee grounds, and you can work those into your soil too. So those will break down into compost. As far as upping the acid level, like I said, I've seen varying lab results. Some show that it does increase acidity level. It's not going to hurt the blueberries or the raspberries, especially rhubarb, those plants that like acidity anyways. But a lot of times, um, espresso stands, I think even Starbucks, I will say that with coffee can be a heavily pesticided crop. So I use, um, I would only go to stands myself personally that I knew used organic coffee, which we are in the Pacific Northwest and there's abundance of those. Sure. <laughs> um, so you can find out which ones that they serve organic coffee, but they will save their espresso grinds and their coffee grounds. And you can just take them, I just take a five gallon bucket and within a couple of days it's filled up and then I can bring it home if we're not going through enough coffee on our own or I want to mend all of our blueberry and raspberry plants at once um, and then put mulch on top for the summer, then that's what I'll do. So adding coffee grounds, you can add that to your regular garden soil as well. But it's just adding nutrients and stuff into that soil, and it will all break down into compost and, and dirt over time. I will say if you add the coffee grounds, especially if it's going to be really wet out, make sure you spread them out fairly fine. If you leave them in a really hard clump together, they can start to grow a little bit of mold on them. So I like, you know, just put it in a fairly smooth, even layer. Don't have big, huge clumps of it together. Yeah, that's a that's a really good tip. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, it's funny. You, you mentioned the acidity of raspberries, and um, I'm kind of looking looking out in my backyard right now. And it's we uh, we've got a lot of raspberries on the property here, and I've got one side <clears throat> that is nowhere near my chicken coop, and that's a pretty good pretty good amount of raspberries. And then I've got I decided to plant some right along the 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 edge of my chicken coop, so it's 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 getting all like that fresh fertilizer that that manure. And those raspberries are, every year, they get about three times as tall as any of the other raspberries. And they produce so many more berries, these big, giant berries. And it's so prevalent, uh, or so obvious, because, uh, you know, it, it's everything that's just kind of leaching off of that fresh uh, manure from the chickens. And it has produced the absolute best raspberries that we've ever had. Um, so I'm, I'm, it was just kind of like... Just I just did it and it and it worked and it, it it's been phenomenal. We just upped our crop immensely by uh by just planting our raspberry row um, right next to the chicken coop. So definitely worked. Yeah, and that's I, but I love that because you did an experiment. You're like, let's just see what happens. And it really, is everybody you know your property and your you know situation where you're growing and stuff. Don't be afraid to do experiments. And that's one of the beauties of gardening and growing your own stuff is try experiments and see, not necessarily with your entire crop sure. <laughs> because you wouldn't want to lose all of it. But yeah, do some experience like that because it's been really, it's really amazing. It's really cool. And some of them won't work. And like know that going in, even experienced gardeners, I was raised, I'm a fifth generation homesteader. So I was raised growing my own food and stuff. And then my husband and I have done that um, ever since we've been married. So I've got decades there, but I still will have fails. Like there will sure. still be something a year that will do something in the crop and that specific Specific crop just doesn't do well, but you learn from it. And every year, you'll add new skill sets. You'll know what's working for you and what's not. So don't be afraid to experiment, and don't be afraid to have a failure. I mean, it can be disheartening. I remember one year, I lost my entire tomato crop, and I was really frustrated. And that's before I – it was blight. And so it really can be frustrating. But to look at it as a learning tool, and then you'll know the next year not to do that. So just look – I just want to give that little bit of encouragement because sometimes it's kind of – like you said, people are a little bit apprehensive – 
But just know that even the most experienced gardener, you will still have something that won't grow as you planned or exactly right, and it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> I'm such a worrywart, and I'm so worried about, like, probably way too much worried about losing my entire crop of one one vegetable or another. Um, when I when I mentioned I did that with the raspberries, um, again, I'm looking out in the backyard. I've got three different patches of raspberries. I left one where they were because they were doing great. I, I started some in another area, and then I started those ones over there and uh, against the coop. And, and they've all done well, but the ones against the coop did phenomenally. So Yeah, they're I was, like on steroids. I was so worried about so big. you know destroying my raspberries that I definitely I go in batches and small doses just to make sure it's going to work before I go all in for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, a lot of times, too, what I'll do, and yeah, that's, the chicken manure, it is so high in nitrogen because... Probably, we're going to be talking about poop here for a minute. Like, it's okay. Homesteaders are good with it. Sure. <laughs> but um, because the chicken, they urinate and then they have their bowel movements all through the same thing. So that's why chicken manure has a higher nitrate in it compared, or nitrogen, excuse me, not nitrates, nitrogen, um, compared to other animals' manure because it's all together in one. But it can be really great, I mean, for growing, like you said. So I'll oftentimes take um, some sawdust, chicken manure, and coffee grounds and create a mulch on the raspberries for that um, in, the, in the springtime. And, yeah, it's a great – yeah, the chicken manure is amazing, especially for raspberries. They really love it. Absolutely. Yeah, I complete, couldn't agree more. So um, I guess uh, the next step here is uh, – boy, I, I wanted to pick your brain on, on seed selection. Um, we've kind of talked about seeds in the past. Um, we've talked about, you know, advantages to certain types, heirlooms and whatnot. But uh, what's your opinion on um, when guys are just getting into it? You know, what should they be looking for when they're picking out their first starter seeds? Starter seeds? Yeah, I, I love – so I'll just tell you all right up front. I love heirloom seeds. So <laughs> yeah. I will tell you, even if you don't plan on seed saving yet, Seed saving, you might be like, I'm just planning on getting these things to grow. Like, I'm not even going to be worried about my seed saving yet, and that's totally fine. But if you start with an heirloom seed at the end of the season, if you decide, yeah, I think I do kind of maybe want to try my hand at seed saving, you've got the option open to you. And so for me personally, I always start with heirloom seeds. And if you've already educated and, and went on about heirloom seeds, I won't do a huge thing. But, you know, with the heirloom seeds, you know you're not getting anything that's genetically modified. And within the heirloom seeds, it's so amazing because there's so many varieties that you do not see on the store shelves mm -hmm. with the heirloom. So there's, you know, the black tomatoes, the purple tomatoes, the blue tomatoes. There's just so many different um, varieties and flavor options even compared to just the common hybrid seeds and crops that, you know, you'll see – when you kind of really go to the grocery store, they got like those spinner racks. So more of them are bringing in heirlooms. They're making a big comeback, right. which I'm super excited about. But what you want to look for is you need to know what your growing season is. So we talked about in the beginning about knowing that first and last average trust date. The reason it's so important is not just does not that only tell you in the springtime when you can put your warm weather crops out and when to plant. But it also tells you how long your growing season is because in the fall when you get your first average trust date, that is your growing season for your warm weather crops, which is the majority of what you think of in a summer garden. So summer squash, uh, winter squash, tomatoes, peppers, green beans, peas, all those type of things, they're going to revolve within that window. So the reason you need to know that is because that tells you some varieties take a lot longer to come to fruition and harvest 
than other varieties. So if you have a shorter growing season, which I kind of do here, it's usually um, some years we've actually not been able to plant until Memorial Day weekend if it's been just really cool. And then usually by mid-September, we can get some of those really cool nights that will kill your tomatoes and your peppers, especially those really sensitive plants, your basil, that type of thing. So I pretty much have, I've got a three-month window, pretty much 90 days. And so a lot of plants, some of them will say 55 to 90 days. And if you look at the back of the seed packet or if you're ordering online from an online source, they will tell you how many days on the back of it until it comes to harvest. And so I always go for those, if I'm looking at, say, three different tomato varieties, I'm going to pick the one that comes to harvest in the shortest amount of time because then I've got a longer harvest season. So if I take a variety that says 85 days versus 65, I just really shorten my harvest period and what I'm going to get from a crop. So knowing that is really important when you're picking your varieties is looking at those days to harvest on the back and then choosing ones that fit your growing season. Now, if you've got a really long growing season, if you live in a more mild climate that doesn't really have those frost dates that are coming in, then you've got a lot more options open to you. But I would definitely, that's the number one way that I pick our varieties when I'm picking. How about you guys? That's a, that's a good point. And for our listeners, um, <clears throat> I'm glad you brought that up because that is uh, one of the things that I've talked about in the past is I want to, I want to get my, my tomatoes. I want to get most of my garden um, to pop early because I, I, I'm a hunter, so I spent a lot of time in late August either scouting or, you know, looking for areas or come September, I'm always in the mountains. And, and that's, I used to plant a little later in the season and that would be the time that I had to really buckle down and do all my canning and, and processing and getting all my food put up. Whereas now, like you just mentioned, I look for getting things started early. I look for plants that I can get a shorter window where I'm getting, you know, an actual fruit off the plant so that I can get all that stuff knocked out by midsummer and I can get my canning in and, and get my sauces made and all that kind of stuff because I'm selfish and I don't want to be canning in, in the, during hunting season. So I think a lot of the listeners, uh, listen up when it comes to trying to get these plants to, uh, to pop early versus later when you're, uh, wanting to get out and traipse into the mountains. Yeah, you know, some years we'll have a real, you know, you'll have an extended, like an Indian summer. We won't get those earlier frosts, and that's great. It's just, it's just more crop fresh, but I always, I hope for the best, Yeah. Uh, but I always plan for the worst. It's kind of my motto, especially with right. the garden. So that's one thing, yeah, that we definitely do. And speaking to that, because my husband um, is a hunter too, and so if you're one of the ladies who are listening, you want to pick those varieties too because then your sweet husband will be home to help you can and not up in the mountains. So it kind of works That's for both perfect. sides of the coin there. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I got um, to get my wife into canning. I don't, I, I don't can as much as Ryan. I, that was, that was, I, I was a big flower. I started out, my mom was, my mom has like epic, she lives in Montana, you know, and her growing season feels like a month. You know, it's uh, her frost come in early and, but she was big into flowers and plants and trees. And so that's kind of how I grew up and that's where I started. And then we started gardening together and somewhere in the mix, Ryan just started canning. Uh, You know, I used to travel a lot for work and I'd be at like a business meeting on a Friday night in like New York City and people were like, what does your husband do for a living? And I'd get the text from him. 
This is what I just did. I just canned 40 jars of potatoes. And I'm like, huh. <laughs> my husband's at home right now canning vegetables. And they're all like, what? That's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, it is amazing. I didn't have to do it. <laughs> well, I tell you what, you get a bug. I, <clears throat> I've said this before. Um, growing up, I used to make fun of uh, my dad because he was so big into gardening. And what I saw gardening as back then was a takeaway from fishing season, which was all summer long, chasing steelhead <laughs> on the river. So all I could see is my dad's out there picking weeds while I'm out there fishing. And I just couldn't put it together. Like, why in the world would you want to do, you know, raise a garden and spend all that time out there? And then you got to, you like can it and process it. And yeah, so was, I was into my 20s before I kind of figured it out and and realize that uh, it's pretty cool, and there's a huge advantage and, and a big benefit that you get out of it, and you you really enjoy it. You just it's it's it grows on you. Put it that way. It does. You know, same thing with canning because the more I grew up canning, my mom we always had a summer garden, and my mom always canned, and I you know helped her can and that kind of thing. My dad didn't can, but he would he would pick and snap the beans, and then we would do the process of canning it. So it was still a joint family effort, which is one of the things that I think is so awesome actually about gardening and then preserving it because I've got uh, my husband, we have two, two kids at home and they help too. And so it's, it can be a great bonding time. I mean, they're not always thrilled when they say we're going to go weed the garden now, but they really do take an overall pride in helping them grow this food and putting it up and knowing that it, you know, it's, it's our food for the winter and that type of thing. So I think it can be a great um, family unit project too yeah i've noticed that I really our, like. daughters. Our, our daughters you know they'll bring other other girls over and and um you know paleo be out there and we'll go out to the garden and we'll do like a little potato picking session or whatever and you know a lot of folks or a lot of the kids they haven't been raised around that so they don't see it they it's kind of foreign to them and you know um with gardening and hunting combined um Haley's getting to see that side of where food comes from and, and uh, how it's grown and all the time you put into it and, and, you know, all this kind of thing. And it's, it's a huge benefit, I feel. Well, I have a lot of uh, video of like uh, paleo sleepovers or her birthday parties in the summer. Um, They all want to go out in the garden. If you go, do you want to go out and pick some carrots? They're all like, you know, paleo roll her eyes, like, I gotta go pick carrots again, but all the other girls will be like, yeah, let's go, you know, and they, they just, it's so cool, they pull a carrot out of the ground, and they're like, whoa, you Can know, I eat it? Yeah. and it's a, it's kind of sad, you know, I, I, my, I always feel like there should be more outreach for children who don't get, you know, accessibility to that, to show them how, how the food is grown, and, and how good it tastes when they eat it, and all that stuff. So we, we get a lot of, uh, we get a lot of, um, good feelings, I guess, seeing other kids benefit from, from being exposed to it. So, yeah, we've got one little gal in town, one of Paley's friends. And, you know, I just like, I just, the other day I saw her in the grocery store and, um, and, and the first thing she yells out from across the store is, I want to come eat some salad. You know, (laughs) it's like, She's that's just awesome. like, how many kids say that? Like, yeah. really? <laughs> I mean, that's how she like she sees us. You know, this I guess the greens people, the, the folks that eat all their salad. She loves it when she comes here. She's just like chowing down on all these greens and kohlrabi and all these different things that she's just not accustomed to. But uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah, and that's one of, that I don't know about you guys, but I have taste tested, and anybody. The stuff that you grow at home when it's had a chance to ripen on the vine and fully come to maturity before being picked early and shipped off 
you know, to some part of the country or whatever, there is so much more flavor to homegrown vegetables than there is even things that, you know, you might buy that say local on them. There's just no comparison, I don't think, for the taste difference. You're right. Yeah, it's it's night and day. I mean, just pick a tomato off the vine or eat a carrot, you know, something simple as a carrot. There's so much yeah. more uh, sweet and so much more flavor. Um, it's, it is completely different. I, I dread if I had to buy a tomato from the store shelf, it's just going to taste like water. <laughs> it's just going to be real bland and no flavor to it. So yeah, there is a big difference. Yeah, yeah actually. Um, and that brings me, I forgot to say with the tomatoes, when we were talking about picking your seeds, of course, heirloom is one of my favorites and then going through growing season. But also if you plan on doing some preserving, making, you know, salsa, tomato sauces, that kind of thing, and canning those, make sure you pick at least one variety that is a paste variety of tomatoes because they don't have the higher water content like some of your just fresh-eating tomatoes will, right. which means when you go to make sauces, they're more flavorful, and you're not going to spend as much time trying to get those sauces to thicken up because you don't have to cook as much water off. So if, you can, if you're planning on preserving, put yourself some paste tomato varieties in as well. Like say um, aroma is kind of what you see the most of around here. Um, guys, guys kind of use Roma tomatoes for that. Yeah, you can use Roma. My personal favorite is an heirloom San Marzano Lungo Number no. Two. Um, they just have great flavor, and I get huge yields. Like I put in, okay, I think I had last year. I had eighteen of the San Marzano Lungo tomato plants, and off of that harvest, of course, fresh eating, and then oh my goodness, I put up all of our tomato sauce and salsa, and stewed tomatoes for the entire year off of those 18 plants for a family of four. So they have a high yield, which I really like. Um, Roma's Amish paste is another really popular one that people like to use for those. Um, but, yeah, the flavor in them also comes out really nice in sauces and kind of gives them just a bit of a deeper flavor. Like I don't have, you know, I don't add sugar or, or anything like that, which is one of the benefits of canning either. Just a really nice um, flavor in your sauces. So that would be some varieties you'd want to take a look at um, selecting your seeds. Now, back, uh, just just wanted to rehash on the seed selection again. Um, now, some folks may not be real familiar with the difference between a genetically modified seed or a hybrid or, a, or an heirloom. Uh, could you, could you uh, just kind of briefly go over that just a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So an heirloom seed, usually you will see on the seed packet, if it's heirloom, normally it will say heirloom on it. Another terminology, depending upon the company that you're looking at, they'll also use could be open pollinated. So open pollinated usually means heirloom as well. So what that means is that's um, how the seeds were created. You know, when, when God made nature and the earth was formed, all of our seeds were heirloom seeds. Then over time, you have hybrid seeds. Now in nature, naturally occurring, you will get hybrids, and that's simply where two types of tomatoes will um, cross-pollinate and come up with a new strain. And that happens, you know, all the time. And, and But when you see hybrid seeds, and what we mean hybrid seeds when we're talking about hybrid seeds as far as you purchasing seeds and in our modern society now, hybrid seeds were developed in the 1940s, and that's when our modern agriculture kind of started to take off. And you had less and less farm homes and you had these big farms coming up and big crops were shipped to markets and it became a, a bigger business than it was before. So the in the 1940s, you had these different um, seed companies. And so in a lab, they would take the best traits from two different 
still in the same family. So say they had a tomato plant. And this one tomato plant really put off a ton of tomatoes. Like it was a really excellent producer, which means higher yield per plant, more profit for the farmer, right? Mm -hmm. So they would take that trait from that tomato, and then they had this other tomato variety that maybe wasn't quite as good as a producer, but its tomatoes were all really perfectly round and a really nice bright red. And so they would put those two together, and then they would that would be their own hybrid strain of tomato. And there could be other things that they would put them in, in there, but it was all from within the same plant family. But they would take that in a lab and create this hybrid tomato. So that, and a lot of that too was because our eye buys. So if we're at the grocery store and we see this really perfectly round, beautiful red tomato, and then we see this lumpy kind of misshapen one over here, normally we pick the really pretty one. Sure. So there was part of that too. But the, the problem with that, and there's nothing wrong if you're planting hybrid seeds, you bought hybrid seeds, there's nothing wrong with a hybrid seed. A hybrid seed is not a genetically modified seed. So there's nothing wrong with that. The only, the only issue with it is, one is you have to buy that seed again every year because if you try to save the seed, one, it, it might not germinate. And two, if it does grow back the next year, it's not the same type of plant because it will revert back to one of the parent plants, but not both. So we actually had you might end up with some zucchini. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, yeah, you might end up with an orange or, or different colored tomato on the following year. With that same seed. right or or really horrible flavor so this is what happened to us is we had some zucchini that got caught in a frost and so it got frozen we just left it out in the garden the next year and then just tilled all that back in and this is before i did an all heirloom garden this was oh heavens about 15 years ago <laughs> so the next spring that volunteered out so those seeds had you know stayed in the ground dormant over winter and then in the spring they grew up so they were the first seed that came up and I was super excited. I'm like, I didn't have to plant that. They were the ones that started producing zucchini first. I'm super excited. Got to the garden. Looks gorgeous. Looks like a normal zucchini. Beautiful, beautiful thing. Take it inside. Oh my Atlanta. It was so bitter. And every single zucchini that those plants put off were so bitter. I mean, you couldn't even pretty them bad boys up in a cake. They were just nasty. <laughs> and so that's what I learned about hybrids and trying to seed save and it usually does not work. Right. So that's a hybrid seed. Like I said, not, there's not anything wrong with it, but you are limited to repurchasing it, not being able to seed save, and you're, you're a lot more limited in the varieties that you can choose from. So genetically modified seeds, on the other hand, the GMOs, um, normally you won't see in the store any GMO seeds on a seed packet, but the, the problem with GMOs, which is why I stick with the heirlooms myself, is genetically modified seeds. So in a lab, but different than hybrid, but in a lab, you've got these major companies that will take DNA from different items. So not just a tomato to a tomato, but you can have DNA from an animal actually put into the seed. You can have um, DNA from different, total different plant categories put into this seed. Um, so, and then you can have some of them, for instance, like with the GMO corn, they don't want them to, they don't want Roundup to kill the corn that's growing because they want to be able to just spray the Roundup and not worry about the crop. So the entire crop gets sprayed with Roundup. So they've went in and they've altered that seed so that the Roundup won't kill that seed. So there's a lot more going on than just putting two types of plants together with the genetically modified seeds. Um, the other problem with genetically modified seeds is 
they're patented. So that means that that food source is patented and there can be a, two farmers, and you can go online and, and check this out. There's a lot of documentation. But you can have one farmer who has planted the GMO seed, and then you can have the farmer next door who has not planted GMO seed. But plants, nature, we then cross-pollinate. So you have, right. once something's out there, it's really hard to take that back. And corn is one of the biggest GMO crops. Corn is also one of the most cross-pollinating crops. Corn in perfect flat conditions can cross-pollinate up to five miles away. So you've got these crops that are cross-pollinating. So you've got farmer A here who has GMO corn, farmer B who has non-GMO corn. Their crops cross-pollinate. And if these seed companies want, and they are, they can go to farmer B and they can test his corn and they can say, hey, this is showing our seed and you did not buy our GMO seed. You're infringing on our patent, and we can take your whole crop. So even though Farmer B didn't do that, it cross-pollinated. Because it's patented, there's all this legal stuff that can get involved. So I don't like to support the GMOs, not just for health health implications alone, but just for that, too. I don't think that that our food should ever be a patented um, thing like that. But anyhow, so with the GMO crops, you've got your major GMO crops are soy, corn, and then they just, uh, the FDA just approved some GMO apples and potatoes um, that aren't on the market yet, and then some summer squash. So you can, there's a, the GMO project and different things like that online that are excellent resources that have lists of stuff. Um, so personally, I just stay with the heirloom seeds. So I don't worry about cross-contamination, right. but um with the hybrids, they're not genetically modified, but genetically modified seeds aren't hybrid either. And a lot of times I see confusion with people not quite understanding the difference. So thanks, yeah, for the giving a chance for the clarification there. Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't agree more with you on the genetically modified stuff. It's uh, it's a little worrisome. It's a little creepy. There's a lot of documentaries out there on Netflix. Guys can go and watch and see the just the horror out there with what's happened to a lot of these farmers that have had... Um, you know, these genetically modified seeds ends up on, end up on their land. It's, it's pretty scary. Um, so definitely we, we choose to avoid that as well and uh, try to stick with the heirlooms. And we have a few hybrids as well, but uh, definitely go push more for the heirlooms than anything else. Because like you said before, we're cheap and uh, I would prefer to reseed or uh, seed save and, and use those the following year so I don't have to go buy another packet. But, yeah, uh, yeah, that's what we do. And in fact... Um, so in my family, one of the things that I'm super excited about is, so my family's been seed saving two strains of beans. One is a green pole bean and the other is a shelly bean. Um, and I say for at least 100 years, but I'm sure it goes further than that, back farther than that. Um, but So we've never bought bean seed from the store, and every generation we've just saved the seed and planted every year and then, you know, hand it down to the family members. My dad gave me mine, his parents gave him his, so... I, cool. I have a special wow. fondness in my heart for yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, bringing that up, what um, I guess, you know, a lot of folks are probably wondering, like, if they haven't started. Obviously, what they enjoy makes a difference, you know, with what they're going to plant. But what do you see as far as plants um, kind of being, like, the most bang for your buck? Like, what do you get the most out of? What's going what's gonna to hold over? What's going to keep you from having to go to the grocery store um, so many times in the winter? Do you have any uh, Yeah, that's great. I, yeah, I do, actually. So for me, one is um, is beans. So I, I like I said, just, just mentioned, I love our green beans. And the, the heirloom variety that we're growing, which I'm hoping to grow 
enough. I have to see how much I have this year to plant um, to be able not to sell the seeds, but if people want to try them out um, just to cover sh- the shipping and handling and, and to let people try them out as long as supplies last. Um, but what's great about this variety of bean, and we call it a tarteal whole green bean because it came from Appalachia. It's where my, my grandparents and my dad came from in the 1940s. But um, so when it's mature, when it's immature, when it's young, it's just a regular snap green bean. So just like you would do any regular green bean. So when they're early, then we pick them all that and, and can and harvest all of our green beans for the year. Never buy green beans from the store. And then as it matures, which is what you would do for seed saving with beans, as the bean inside the, the, the pod matures and grows, then it actually is also a dried white bean. So I get my fresh-eating green beans, and then I also get my seed and a dried bean all from the same plant, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, no kidding. So that's so if you can look at some different bean varieties, look at that. Um, that's one thing. And then tomatoes, of course, because you can do salsa, you can do tomato sauce, you can do sun-dried tomatoes. I mean, tomatoes really have a, a lot of versatility to them. So I always like to put in quite a bit of tomatoes, fresh eating as well. Um, oh, with mozzarella and fresh basil on them. Oh, one of my favorite summer <laughs> summer meals right there. <laughs> so tomatoes is one that I really like to do. And then, of course, herbs because you can you can just put herbs anywhere. You can just poke them anywhere into your landscaping and flower pots. So herbs can be a great thing, too, to add in that are just really easy and simple. And those are great um, but to put in as kind of a companion plant as well, right? Um, with certain plants. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do basil with the tomatoes. And yeah, there's a, yeah, with companion planting, there's a ton of different herbs that are, you know, will repel certain different pests and stuff that you can use. And they're just little enough that they don't take up a ton of space in the garden and you can just put those in. But definitely um, some type of dual purpose bean if possible. And of course, then tomatoes. And then some of the things that I do like to grow fresh, but I don't put a huge portion in the garden and because I can't preserve them. So I'm going to put things that I can preserve or that's going to feed us for longer than just when the harvest is fresh. Of course, it would be something like lettuce. Now, lettuce is fairly small and you can grow cool weather lettuce for a good portion of the year. But if I'm, in a, if I'm really limited to space and I can put something else in there that I can preserve, then lettuce isn't going to be one that I put in there personally. So I really like to put in, um, we love butternut squash, and some of those winter squashes, summer squash are great too. Of course, cucumbers for, you know, pickling and just fresh eating as well. But I really love uh, butternut squash and spaghetti squash. And a couple of the reasons for the butternut squash is just one of our favorite. And spaghetti squash, they have really long shelf life. Spaghetti squash, we've harvested, let them cure, just drying out so that the skins are nice and hard on the outside. I've kept spaghetti squash in my kitchen just on my island shelves, and they have been good for six months Yeah, wow. without having to do anything to them. Yeah, so I, I will put those crops in versus some other ones just because I know that they're going to last us longer throughout the year without yeah, a ton not, of extra not to work mention, on my part. That makes, like, the best spaghetti, right? You get a, you get a break out a can of yeah. fresh tomato sauce so- or uh, spaghetti sauce with with the actual spaghetti squash. It's it's just it's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's really good. So I kind of look at things when I'm putting varieties in more from a preserver's perspective, like how am I gonna, how am I going to preserve this for the year? What kind of meals can I put this in? You know, like how is this going to serve into our meals and our, our diet and that type of thing first? And then of course, like I said, you know, I like lettuce and there's and so we'll put those in. But the majority of the garden goes to those crops 
that I know that we eat. And that's another thing, too. Don't plant what you don't like. Sure. <laughs> you know, if you, it might sound great to do all of this kale, but if you're not really that fond of kale, sure. then don't grow it. So look at the things that you're already just normally buying from the grocery store. If they grow well in your area, and if there's ways that you can preserve those at home so that you can have them for year-round eating, those are the ones I dial in on first, and then you can add the other stuff in as you have room and time. That's perfect. Yeah, I know <clears throat> my garden has changed over the years. I used to plant like way too many carrots and like way too many beets and all this, but we found ways, especially with the beets, we do a lot of pickling now. And um, some of the some of the plants that I've just kind of uh, upped my game with, there's onions and garlic, and the reason mm-hmm. being is because you can. We do a lot of stuff with the dehydrator around here. So onions, I found that <clears throat> I like to make my own onion powder just for the off season. And I like drying them, turning them into just like these, especially Walla Wallas. They turn into this sweet little like chip and it's pretty good. And then garlic powder as well. You can dehydrate that stuff and have, you know, garlic powder all season long. Um, and it's something, again, that you can like, you can really easily dry and preserve and get a, a really long shelf life out of. So onions, garlic, um, as far as as far as greens, um, like you said, it, it's kind of hard to preserve a lot of those. You can cook them down and freeze them and whatnot, but uh, I think that's kind of why we've gone to powdering our kale. We we eat fresh kale and we eat fresh spinach and greens all summer, but then we find like in the winter time we're not really not we're really not wanting to buy much from the grocery store. But we're just kind of adding kale powder to uh, smoothies or or things like that. Um, or, you know, even protein pancakes in the morning, we're adding a little kale powder to it. And you don't even taste it. And it just kind of, you know, you're getting some good greens in there. So uh, those are one of those things as yeah. well that's that's really worked for uh, kind of having year-round. Yeah, and I have to say, speaking of the greens, one of the things that I love, which doesn't really have to growing, but if you've got wild edibles or foraging available, so right now in our neck of the woods, Steam nettles are starting to pop up. And, of course, the morale mushrooms, if we can get the rain to stop and some more, yeah. they'll be coming out, too. Any day. But, you know, so the thing of, yeah, I will go and harvest those and, you know, we'll steam them and then I dehydrate those to make tea out of. But you're right, any green can be dehydrated, which is, you can, yeah, I tried the steaming and freezing route, but there's only so much freezer space as yeah. well, too. But the yeah. dehydrated route, and you can add, yeah, add that powder in, like you said, smoothies, pancakes soups and stews, you know, anything like that, or even casserole, and you're just going to be adding in some nutrients there and vitamins, right, that came off your land, so you're not having to add it, you know, purchase it at the store, add it another way. So, yeah, that's a great tip. And I'll dehydrate it with steaming nettles and then use those in uh, nettle leaf tea, too. Yeah, we have not tried that. That's going to, we're going to have to get that on the list here this year. (laughs) Yeah, we used to, when I was in uh, medical school, you know, I went to Bastyr, and uh, we did a lot of... um, like we did herbs, you know, uh, botanical medicine. And so we had to make a, and do some of our own wild crafting and stuff. And I used to do more of that where I would, you know, be harvesting herbs and then drying them and making teas and that kind of thing. Even like the dandelions around here, we, we get these like monstrous dandelions in our yard and you know, the dandelion leaves are great for the kidneys and the roots are good for the liver. And so sometimes I pick those and you could even dry those and make a tea out of them, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, dandelions are are great. I mean, the yeah, you can. I've seen where people have taken the blossoms and made like a fruit out of them. Like they'll dip the blossoms in like a batter and, and fry them up, and then steam dandelion greens and then their roots. 
dandelion roots. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that could just be growing in your yard um, that you can use too. So I think once you start growing things, you kind of start looking at things a little bit different in your landscaping or on your property and you start doing more investigating like is, is you know, is, does this have a benefit that I could right. use for food? So it's, it's right. really fun. It just kind of all rolls together. Well, what I find really interesting in botanical medicine is that a lot of the plants that are considered cleansing plants and he, you know, like liver, kidney, blood, uh, they are all like, are, are they're like weeds, we consider them weeds, and so we pick them and we throw them away. But you know, like yeah. red clover, that's good for you know that's a phytoestrogen, that, and that's good for women. Yeah. And um, you know, like dandelion, we talked about like milk thistle, which is a is a thistle. It's a weed, basically. I mean, that's like the best liver cleaner around. And we, most people think of dandelions. It's like it's time to mow the lawn, right? Yeah. And so a lot of these plants that we consider weeds in our diet are really some of the best medicinal plants that we can eat. Yeah, no, I completely agree. In fact, you know, like I always thought here, you guys probably do too because I know we're really similar to growing, but you know, like plantain. Like, I, I thought it was this weed out in the yard and that would pop up in the rocks in the driveway. And then I discovered that plantain, plantain can be, you know, awesome. And I'm like, I have yeah. no idea. It's amazing. Yeah, same thing with stinging nettles. You know, they're they're scary if you don't pick them with gloves on. But <laughs> yes. once you dehydrate them or cook them down, you know, they're they're really nutritious. They're... They're really good blood builders and good for iron and uh, it's yeah we we've kind of got this I think I think the whole idea of um, agriculture and that we're growing these certain crops and then this is what we're supposed to eat and we do forget that most of our ancestors were eating wild crafted plants which basically means they were going out and they were picking them when these plants were in season of all different types and they were using them as medicine. You know, they were medicinal foods, and I think that our food groups now have become like, oh, you eat carrots and lettuce and, you know, um, potatoes, and people just kind of get used to those foods, and we're missing a lot of the medicinal foods that are good for a lot of our body systems, and this is how people used to eat, right? Is that more ancestral way of eating? Um yeah, no, I yeah, I completely agree. Um, the more, <laughs> the more that I kind of stepped back because I wasn't. I mean, I was raised as a hunter, and we raised. I grew up raising our own uh, beef cattle and having a garden and canning beans and you know picking your fruit, making your jam and jelly and canning that kind of stuff. But as far as you know, using herbs or you know that kind of thing for medicinal purposes, I didn't grow up with that. So. Now, after, you know, going through a lot of health issues and modern medicine really failing me for the most part and looking at the foods that we're eating and the things that we're putting into our body and natural ways that we can heal our bodies, I've had incredible healing from doing that. And I, and it's just so amazing what we choose to put into our bodies, how it can heal us and the benefits it can have that if you're not searching it out, I mean, you don't get, you know, you go to the doctor's office and you don't find that. And I think we live in an age now with the power of the internet. I mean, this is a podcast and we have all of this information. Of course, we need to be discerning everything you read or hear on the internet is not true, but with some discernment, you've got so much at your fingertips that we've never had before. It really is an amazing time. 
Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful? Ryan and I have always had this thing about we hate grass, you know. We we only have a half acre plot of land, but our entire backyard is we've tried to make it as little grass as we can and we are not one of these people that goes out and tends our grass, you know, cuz you know here in Washington you, your grass will die, and then you'll just watch it come back, like the rain. I mean, you can't get away from the grass growing here. But it seems like such a wasted resource, right? People put so much effort into their grass and what their yard looks like and the the, the mold out of the grass and making sure you, you spray all your dandelions out so they're not out there. But wouldn't it be cool if if we had more of this idea of this, even if you had a little piece of land, you know, in a neighborhood where people were building gardens and boxes and not utilizing resources on things like grass. And in that, we would probably have less pesticide use, less pesticide runoffs, you know, because don't go out in your yard and eat the dandelions if you've been spraying them with Roundup for 10 years. You know, that's probably not a good idea. Right. Amen. Yes. No. <laughs> but well, um, the grocery stores are not going to agree with your your theory on this. They no, would not but, be happy if we're all growing our own food. The idea of growing your own food and decreasing resources spent on things like grass that really don't do much for you if you think about grass and the the the, the long term benefits of it. So. I always think about that where I'm like, gosh, if everybody would just take that little plot of land and they'd well, grow a bunch of vegetables. And- I'm perfectly happy with my garden, or my garden getting bigger every year and my raspberries taking over a little bit more of my yard every year. Um, it just seems like there's so much more benefit. I'd, I'd rather pick berries off my off my property than mow my lawn. My lawn so. Than mow the grass? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Now, our pasture is a different thing because... Not feeding the beef cows, that's but right. yeah, that's <laughs> the yard, right. totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, man, this is uh, this was great. I, I really enjoy you uh, coming on here today, Melissa. It was. Uh, I think we could talk for hours. I, I'd i love to get you back on here, and uh, as we get a little closer to canning season, we could probably knock out hours on, on canning and the advantages and the benefits and, and the ways of going about it. So hopefully we can get yeah. you back on here and uh, and we can get a canning episode. Uh, recorded. Yeah. Is yeah. There- thank you so much for reaching out and letting me know that, um, know about you guys and that we're actually pretty close. It's not often that you get to find other um, homesteaders or like-minded people so close and for inviting me on. I've had a blast. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have a book. Do you have a book that just came out or you're working on a book or do you have any like share with our audience, like how they find you and if you have anything you want to talk about to promote what you're doing? Yeah, a little bit of both, actually. So, as Ryan shared, um, I'm Pioneer State Podcast. So, com is my website with the blog and podcast episodes as well. And then I did last February, I had my first book came out, which is called The Made from Scratch Life, Simple Ways to Create a Natural Home. So, it's kind of, it's a homesteading manual, essentially. Um, we walk through, you know, planting, and there's charts for that, uh, seed saving, and then lots of from scratch recipes, not only old-fashioned cooking and some of our family's jam and jelly recipes, but also, you know, regular cooking, but then also recipes making your own natural cleaners um, and things that you would use in, in within your home, too. So kind of like a lifestyle manual. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have a brand new book that I just turned in the edits to my editor in the publishing company that will be out this coming October called Handmade, uh, the modern guide to made from scratch living that I'm really excited about. And that one's got 
um, that will be coming out has a herbal section using herbs um, both medicinally and culinary, which I'm really excited about. There's a section on that. So I'm really excited about both of those. Um, thank you for asking. And I did want to offer up for anybody who has been listening, I have a free chart, and it's called Raise Your Own Food for a Year. And so it, it kind of breaks down plant by plant how much you need for one person, and then you can multiply it out by how many people you have in your family that you would get enough harvest off of that to last you through a year. And then I've got personal notes in there of how much we grow of each plant as well. Um, so if anybody would like access to that, it's totally free. And you can go to mostknorris.com slash, excuse me, I actually haven't made the link up. I hope you guys edit. <laughs> mostknorris.com slash HHH podcast from your guys' podcast, and then they can grab that for resource and get that chart downloaded if they'd like to have that helping them plan out their plants for the year and crop. Oh, that's great. We'll we'll put that on our website, uh, on our um, programs page, and we'll just put that there so people can go there as well and to the huntharvesthealth.com and get, get sent straight to your website to get that. That's a great resource. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, thanks so much. I would love to come back on and talk canning because, yeah, I think we could probably sit and visit for days. Like, I envision us around a campfire and we wouldn't go to bed until, like, 2 o'clock in the morning because we're talking so much. Different recipes and canning and, yeah, it's awesome. I love it. I geek out on this stuff so for whatever reason. Oh, it's but, great. Uh, yeah. Well, again, thanks thanks for coming on here, and we'll have to do it again soon. But, uh, yeah, MelissaKNorris.com. Um, highly encourage anybody to go read some of her great blogs and listen to some podcasts and, uh, and get her book. So thanks, Melissa. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to the Hunt Harvest Health podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit our website at huntharvesthealth.com for more podcast stories and recipes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hunt Harvest Health. You can also message me at stahealthyhunter, that's S-T-H, and I will be more than happy to answer any questions you might have. Also tag your photos, Hunt Harvest Health, or Get Stealthy as we enjoy seeing what you guys are doing as well. Mm-hmm.